fact, it's the very first half of that verse, Philippians 1, verse 27. Let me read it to you. In the ESV, which you have there in front of you, uh, it says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, the NIV puts it this way, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And actually, neither translation, I would suggest, neither translation is ideal. Um, but uh, the NIV, I think, is somewhat better, a little bit better. And I'll explain why in a moment or two, uh, when we look, that is, at this statement in more detail. But that's our text for this morning. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. However, let's look first of all at this statement as a whole. You see, this statement, well, it acts like a banner or overcomes within the following verses of this letter. It's a little bit like a title. It's a little bit like a heading. In Paul's day, you didn't have headings. You didn't have underline or bold or italics. And so it would be put into the text of the letter. And that's what this is. This is a heading which the Apostle Paul then goes on to elaborate on and to explain in detail and to give examples of. So Paul explains in the remaining verses of chapter 1, the verses after our text, he, he explains how this statement should impact our relationship and our attitudes towards the gospel, the gospel of Christ. And in particular, how this, how this statement should impact how it should impact our, 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 our attitude towards the opposition which we face uh, within this world because of the gospel. So that's what Paul goes on to do. He unpacks this statement and explains how it deals with the gospel and how we should react to the gospel. In, in the early verses of chapter 2, he moves on and Paul then explains how this statement should impact our relationship and our attitude towards one another within Christ's church. And in particular, he explains how it should impact our relationship and our attitude towards the central importance of unity within the local church. And then in, in the later verses of chapter 2, Paul goes on again. And this time he explains how this statement should impact our relationship and our attitude towards our own salvation. And in particular, towards how we are to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So this text, this morning's text, is a heading for what follows. It's a banner over what comes within the following verses. However, how shall we approach this statement in itself this morning? Well, simply by breaking it down into three parts. First, we will consider just how vitally important, how essential this is. This truth that, that Paul states is just how vital, just how important it is. Second, we will, we will then look at what Paul is actually asking or rather commanding. What he's telling us to do. And then third, we will consider the scope or the focus 
of and the motivation for what Paul is commanding. And then after that, to conclude, we'll bring out some applications. Firstly then, let's look at the importance of this command of the Apostle Paul. You see, the underlying Greek of this sentence begins with a very simple word. It's the word monon. So what does that Greek word monon mean? Well, it's just as the ESV translates it. It means only, only. However, in, in New Testament Greek, the actual position of a word in its place within the sentence, it also means a great deal, more than it does, I think, even in English. It means a lot. Indeed, in this word, there are three basic types of language. I'm not sure if you knew that, but there are three basic types of language in this world. There are what we might call verb last languages, such as Latin, where the verb except with one or two exceptions, the verb always is found at the end of the sentence. It is a verb last language. Then there are what we might call verb anywhere languages, uh, such as English, where the verb might legitimately finish anywhere within the sentence. You can begin a sentence with a verb, you can end a sentence with a verb, place it anywhere you like. It's a verb anywhere language. You see why translating languages is so hard. But then there are what we might call verb-first languages. And this might surprise some, those who may know Greek, but New Testament Greek is actually a verb-first language, where the verb is placed at the beginning of the sentence. However, in New Testament Greek, Words, many, many words, in fact, whole clauses, in fact, may correctly appear in front of the verb. The verb comes first, but actually you're allowed to put lots of things in front of the verb. But they always put in front of the verb for a very specific and important purpose or purposes. For example, if there's a change of subject... In New Testament Greek, this is signified by placing the new subject, particularly if it's only a pronoun, before the verb. That's how you can tell it's a change of subject. And that's why when we're translating from Greek to English, we have to sometimes put the proper name in rather than the pronoun, because in English, that is not the case. Another example is emphasis. Something is put in front of the verb for emphasis. And this is precisely the case with this small word monon, or only, within our text. It's placed right at the very beginning of our text. It's placed there before the verb for emphasis. Emphasis. In other words, for an English translation of the underlying Greek in Philippians 1 verse 27, only is really effectively a weak translation. It misses the nuance of where the word monon is placed. The NIV's whatever happens is somewhat better, a little bit better, but it still misses the point, doesn't it? 
You see, a better translation, I would suggest, is this and only this. Or this is what matters. Or the important thing is this. Or this above all else. Indeed, even the simple translation, just one thing is better than only, I would say. That is bringing out the full force of the underlying Greek. So do you see it? Do you see it? Paul is telling us that what he commands in the next few words that he writes, that what he commands, that this command is of preeminent importance. It's vital. It's essential for us. Therefore, if nothing else, Paul says, this is what we must understand. This is what we must grasp. This is what must shape, this is what must direct and mould and motivate how we should live as Christians within this world. This is the important thing. This is what's paramount. This is God's will for us. In other words, sit up and take notice. That's what Paul is doing. So, secondly, let's move on to what he says, what he actually commands within this verse. Both in Philippians then, he commands it to the Philippians, but he also commands this to us today. What does Paul command us to do? Now, this is seen in the verb which Paul uses. Sorry, you're getting a little bit of Greek this morning, but I'm not going to apologize for that. But I think it's important to understand our text and, and so what Paul commands is seen in the verb which Paul uses. The verb is written as an imperative. That, that simply means that it's a direct command. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. And, and this command is telling us in no uncertain terms what we should do as Christians within this world. The ESV translates this command, this imperative, as let your manner of life be which again, I would suggest, is somewhat weak. The NIV has conduct yourselves in a manner, which is a little bit better. However, again, I would say both translations don't really bring out the full force of the verb which Paul uses. It's an unusual verb. You see, Paul doesn't at this point in his letter to the Philippians, he doesn't actually use his usual wor words for walk, or for live, or for conduct. He doesn't. He changes the word he uses from what he uses almost consistently through the rest of his letters. He uses a different word. You see, that usual word which Paul uses is the word peripateo, from which we get the English word peripatetic, a word which means to travel from place to place. That's Paul's usual word when he's writing about how we walk, how we live, how we are to conduct ourselves. But the word Paul uses here is polituomai, polituomai, which means live as a citizen or to discharge one's obligations as a citizen. In fact, it's this Greek word which gives rise to the English words politics and political. It's a funny word for Paul to use, isn't it? It's not his usual word. So why does Paul use this word, this unusual word, not his usual word at this point? Why does Paul do that? Why is that? Well, there's a good reason why. 
Remember who Paul is writing to. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to those who live in Philippi. And Philippi is a Roman colony, no less. It was a special town within the Roman Empire. And these Philippians, well, they would be very proud of that fact. They were proud that they were living in a Roman colony. They were patriotic. Little bit like many people are proud to be British citizens. Well, these Philippians were proud to be part of this Roman colony of Philippi. It's exactly what they, were, what they are. Indeed, as citizens of Philippi, they were closely associated with Rome itself and with the Roman Empire and with all that that entails. So these Philippians, they would have sought to live in a manner worthy of their exalted position within this world. They sought to live in a manner worthy of being citizens of a Roman colony. However, Paul is saying, however, you, Christians there in Philippi, you are citizens of a greater kingdom. Do you see it? It's what Paul is saying. You realize that? Paul says to these Philippians, you are citizens, not just of a Roman colony, no, you are citizens of God's kingdom. You're citizens of heaven, no less. That is exactly what you are, Paul says. And so, as you already conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of being citizens of a Roman colony, so, even more, much, much more in fact, you should conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of being citizens of God's kingdom. That's what really counts. Indeed, that this is precisely the idea which Paul has on his mind is clear from the fact that Paul, later on in this same letter, Paul spells out exactly this very same truth, doesn't he? For in Philippians 3 verse 10 we read, But our citizenship is, not in the UK, not in America, not in wherever, not in Israel, not in wherever. No, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is God's will for us? How should we live? Only this, to conduct ourselves in a manner consistent with what we are. That he's citizens, citizens of his kingdom, citizens of heaven no less. That's how we should live. Therefore, in the light of what I have said so far, and this is the ending of the Greek lesson, you'll be glad to hear. But in the light of what I've said so far, what is a good translation of this important statement by Paul? Well, I would suggest the following. The important thing is this. Conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Yes, that's an over-translation, I know. But that is a good translation, I think, of this verse. 
So thirdly and finally, before we bring out some applications, let's consider the scope or the focus and the motivation for Paul's command. You see, some might expect Paul, that Paul would, would write something like this. Perhaps this is what you would write, I don't know. But this, some people would think this is what Paul would write. The important thing is this. Conduct yourselves in a, as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the moral law of God. Or in a manner worthy of God's commands for your lives. Or something like that. Perhaps that's what you would write. If you're writing to somebody to encourage them to live in this world as they should live in this world, you would say, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of God's commands for your life. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't, does he? No. For we are to live, says Paul, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's important. You see, the motivation for our conduct as citizens of heaven, the motivation is the gospel, not the law. It's the gospel, not the moral commands of God. In fact, even more, our lives are to be gospel-shaped. They are to be gospel-molded, if I can put it in that way. Now, the reality of this truth is vital. Again, it's vital. For the very heart of the Christian faith is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So what is this good news? What is this gospel? What is it? Well, it can be summarized, can't it, in five succinct words. Five succinct words. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Christ died for our sins. There it is. That's the gospel. For there we have our status before God, don't we? We are sinners. We're sinners. And there we have our right judgment by God. We must die for our sins. But there we have God's undeserved kindness to us. Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. Of course, of course, the gospel is often spoken of in the New Testament in many, many different ways. For we've been bought by God, haven't we? We've been redeemed by God, rescued, delivered by God. We've been forgiven and pardoned by God. We've been justified by God. And all through the death of Jesus Christ for us. But it's the very same gospel, isn't it? For it's just different ways of expressing this very same wonderful truth. Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. It's glorious. It's wonderful. However, the danger is we can stop there, can't we? We can stop there. We can put, as it were, the gospel on a shelf. And we can describe how we should live in ways that are not connected to the gospel. That's the danger. But no, 
says Paul. No, for the gospel must shape all the thoughts and actions of our day-to-day lives as Christians within this world. The gospel is our motivation. Indeed, the gospel needs to be applied to every area of our lives. Every area. How we live in the family, how we live at work, how we live in this country, our attitude towards politics, everything needs to be shaped by the gospel. So our thinking... Our thinking, our hopes, our desires, our fears, our plans all need to be shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ. And our doing, our actions, our behaviour, our conduct, our deeds, they also all need to be shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ. For it's the gospel, you see, which has the power to motivate and shape our lives not the law. We're justified by faith in Christ. We're sanctified by faith in Christ. Now it's the gospel, and only the gospel, which that it's the gospel which does this can be clearly seen within our text, can't it? Philippians 1 verse 27, in the way Paul writes. But let me give you, there's so many more I could give you, but let me give you just one more example of this though it's actually shot through the whole of the new testament there's so many more i could choose from let me just give you one more example of this that it's the gospel that shapes how we should live second example is romans 5 verse 1 paul writes therefore since we have been justified through faith there's the gospel isn't it but notice the logic notice the connection therefore since we have been justified through faith We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the implication. That's how the gospel works itself out in our thinking. We have peace with God. Not just objective peace, also subjective peace with God. In other words, our thinking, our state of mind is shaped and moulded by the truth, the wonderful truth of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. We have been justified through faith. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the gospel which has the power to motivate and shape our lives, not law. The law is powerless to do that. As it's powerless to save us, it's powerless to change us. We are to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what a lesson that is for us today. What a lesson. For we're called to take off our old self with its practices and put on the new self. Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. And we want to do that, don't we? We should. So what helps us to do that? Meditating upon the law? Well, no, not really. No, what helps us is meditating upon God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in Romans 7, verses 24 and 25, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now notice also the scope and the focus that the gospel has upon our lives. I've already uh, touched on this by saying that the truths of the gospel are to impact every area of our lives. All of our lives. Everything. But in particular, the focus of the gospel is to shape us to be like Jesus Christ. To be like our Saviour. This can be seen in Romans 8, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. So this is God's settled purpose, isn't it, for the lives of his people. This is God's desire for his people. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. There it is, to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is God's settled purpose for the lives of his people. So God's purpose for us through the gospel is to be like Jesus, his son. And that's exactly, exactly what it means to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And also that's why this is of first importance. So we have, the important thing is this, conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let me conclude my message this morning with three straightforward applications. Yes, it's all very well, <clears throat> it's all very well me saying all this. But what does it actually mean for you today, living in this world? living in the hardships and the difficulties and the perplexities that we face day by day, what does it mean to you as a believer in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to you in practice? Well, there are many ways, many, many ways in which we are to be like Jesus Christ. Many ways. However, let me highlight just three. Three applications. The first way to be like Jesus Christ is in his grace. In his grace. For God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is a gracious God. That is amazing, isn't it? God is a gracious God. And we are to show that very same grace, which we have wonderfully, all wonderfully experienced in the gospel. We are to show that same grace to all others. What is grace? What is it? It's God's, it's simple, it's God's undeserved kindness to us. Not what we deserve. It's God's undeserved kindness to us. That's grace. For what we truly deserve from God is wrath and condemnation and everlasting punishment. That's what we deserve. But instead, we have been shown grace and mercy, full and free and forever. It's astonishing, isn't it? it should take your breath away. If it doesn't, you need to meditate more on the gospel of Christ. 
Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Well, it's that grace of God so lavishly poured out upon you in Jesus Christ, which you need to show to others, no matter what they have done to you. For only then, only then are you truly reflecting the character of your Saviour. We are to be those who display undeserved kindness to others, both in and outside the church. The second way we are to be like Jesus Christ is in his forgiveness. In his forgiveness. For again, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a forgiving God. That's also astonishing, isn't it? Indeed, this is the very point of Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant as found in Luke 18, verses 21 to 35. For the master in that parable expresses unimaginable, unbelievable forgiveness to his servant. This would never happen in reality. But that's what happens in this parable. Unbelievable forgiveness from the master to his servant, just like God does to us in the gospel. Whereas the servant doesn't forgive his fellow servant a small amount in comparison. The unforgiving servant is then in line with what he has done, punished by the master. And so we get to the punchline of this parable. For Jesus says in verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. From your heart. You see, God's forgiveness of you is costly. In fact, it cost, didn't it, the very life of his own beloved son who bore the wrath and punishment of God upon sinners in their place. That's precisely how costly God's forgiveness of you is. So are you willing to show costly forgiveness to others? Are you? From the heart. From the heart. And seeking reconciliation if at all possible. Are you? For only then, only then are you truly reflecting the character of your Saviour. Only then. We are to be those who show costly forgiveness to others. Both inside and outside the local church. The third way we are to be like Jesus Christ is in his love. For again, God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a loving God. A loving God. Another astonishing truth, isn't it? In fact, even more, we're told God is love. 
Where are we told that in? 1 John 4, verse 16. God is love. In other words, God is characterised, isn't he? Primarily by love. Indeed, all of God's attributes, all of God's qualities, his compassion, his mercy, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his faithfulness, his omniscience, his wisdom, all are shot through, as it were, by love. God is love. All spring from love, don't they? And God's love is a sacrificial love. It led the Father to give his Son to satisfy his own justice. And it led the Son to give himself for his own. John 10 verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Galatians 2 verse 20, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4 verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. So are you willing to show sacrificial love to others? Whatever the cost, whatever the cost, whether that person is lovable or not, are you willing? Are you? For only then are you truly reflecting the character of your Saviour. We are to be those who show sacrificial love to others, both in and outside the church. So there it is. Undeserved kindness, costly forgiveness, sacrificial love. That's how we are to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Of course we fail, this side of glory that is, of course we do. But thanks be to God that the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. But nevertheless, nevertheless that is not a cop out is it? No, nevertheless, nevertheless it is to this that we are called. Yes, we are saved by extravagant grace. We are. But we're also saved to a life of radical discipleship. To express that undeserved kindness, that costly forgiveness, that sacrificial love to others. That's what's of first importance, isn't it? We read earlier uh, from Ephesians 4, and I just want to reread those last few verses. Ephesians 4, verse 32 through to chapter 5, verse 2. In fact, as, we, as I read these verses, just, just notice how kindness and forgiveness and love, they all appear in those few verses. Notice that. We read, Paul writes, be kind 
and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Philippians 1 verse 27. The important thing is this. Conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, may God help us for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, what can we say? We know we are saved, not by anything we have done. All of your lavish, extravagant grace to us in Christ. It is all of you, from first to last, for your glory alone. And yet we are also called, as we've just seen, to radical discipleship. To show something of the Father's likeness in how we live and our Saviour's likeness in how we live. To express that undeserved kindness that costly forgiveness, that sacrificial love. Help us to do that. For we are weak and we can only do it through your spirit. And so we seek your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing now before we come to the Lord's table.